Chapter Eight, Part One of the Water Babies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corrie Samuel. The Water Babies by Charles Kingsley. Chapter Eight and Last, Part One. Come to me, O ye children. For I hear you at your play, And the questions that perplexed me Have vanished quite away. Ye open the eastern windows That look towards the sun, Where thoughts are singing swallows, And the brooks of morning run. For what are all our contrivings, And the wisdom of our books, When compared with your caresses, And the gladness of your looks? Ye are better than all the ballads That ever were sung or said, for ye are living poems, and all the rest are dead. Longfellow Here begins the never-to-be-too-much-studied account of the nine hundred and ninety-ninth part of the wonderful things which Tom saw on his journey to the other end of nowhere, which all good little children are requested to read, that if ever they get to the other end of nowhere, as they may very well probably do, they may not burst out laughing, or try to run away, or do any other silly vulgar thing which may offend Mrs. Bedumbo as you did. Now, as soon as Tom had left Peacepool, he came to the white lap of the great sea-mother, ten thousand fathoms deep, where she makes world-pap all day long for the steam-giants to knead and the fire-giants to bake till it has risen and hardened into mountain-loaves and island-cakes. And there Tom was very near being kneaded up in the world-pap, and turned into a fossil-water baby, which would have astonished the Geological Society of New Zealand some hundreds of thousands of years hence. For, as he walked along in the silence of the sea-twilight, on the soft white ocean floor, he was aware of a hissing, and a roaring, and a thumping, and a pumping, as of all the steam-engines in the world at once. And when he came near, the water grew boiling hot. Not that that hurt him in the least, but it also grew as foul as gruel, and every moment he stumbled over dead shells, and fish, and sharks, and seals, and whales, which had been killed by the hot water. And at last he came to the great sea-serpent himself, lying dead at the bottom, and as he was too thick to scramble over, Tom had to walk round him three-quarters of a mile and more, which put him out of his path sadly. And, when he had got round, he came to the place called Stop, and there he stopped, and just in time. For he was on the edge of a vast hole in the bottom of the sea, up which was rushing and roaring clear steam, enough to work all the engines in the world at once so clear, indeed, that it was quite light at moments, and Tom could see almost up to the top of the water above, and down below into the pit for nobody knows how far. But, as soon as he bent his head over the edge, he got such a rap on the nose from pebbles that he jumped back again, for the steam, as it rushed up, rasped away the sides of the hole, and hurled it up into the sea in a shower of mud and gravel and ashes, and then it spread all around and sank again, and covered in the dead fish so fast that before Tom had stood there five minutes he was buried in silt up to his ankles, and began to be afraid that he should have been buried alive. 
and perhaps he would have been, but that while he was thinking, the whole piece of ground on which he stood was torn off and blown upwards, and away flew Tom a mile up through the sea, wondering what was coming next. At last he stopped, thump, and found himself tight in the legs of the most wonderful burgie which he had ever seen. It had I don't know how many wings, as big as the sails of a windmill, and spread out in a ring like them, and with them it hovered over the steam which rushed up, as a ball hovers over the top of a fountain. And for every wing above it had a leg below, with a claw like a comb at the tip, and a nostril at the root, and in the middle it had no stomach and one eye, and as for its mouth, that was all on one side, as the madreporiform tubercle in a starfish is. Well, it was a very strange beast, but no stranger than some dozens which you may see. "'What do you want here?' it cried quite peevishly, getting in my way, and it tried to drop Tom, but he held on tight to its claws, thinking himself safer where he was. So Tom told him who he was, and what his errand was, and the thing winked its one eye and sneered, I am too old to be taken in in that way. You are come after gold. I know you are. Gold? What is gold? And really Tom did not know. But the suspicious old bogey would not believe him. But after a while Tom began to understand a little. For, as the vapours came up out of the hole, the bogey smelt them with his nostrils, and combed them, and sorted them with his combs. And then— when they steamed up through them against his wings, they were changed into showers and streams of metal. From one wing fell gold dust, and from another silver, and from another copper, and from another tin, and from another lead, and so on, and sank into the soft mud, into veins and cracks, and hardened there, whereby it comes to pass that the rocks are full of metal. But, all of a sudden, Somebody shut off the steam below, and the hole was left empty in an instant, and then down rushed the water into the hole, in such a whirlpool that the burgie spun round and round as fast as a teetotum. But that was all in his day's work, like a fair fall with the hounds. So all he did was say to Tom, Now is your time, youngster, to get down if you are in earnest, which I don't believe. You'll soon see, said Tom and away he went, as bold as Baron Munchausen, and shot down the rushing cataract like a salmon at Balisodere. And, when he got to the bottom, he swam till he was washed on shore safe upon the other end of nowhere, and he found it, to his surprise, as most other people do, much more like this end of somewhere than he had been in the habit of expecting. And first he went through waste paperland, where all the stupid books lie in heaps, up hill and down dale, like leaves in a winter wood, and there he saw people digging and grubbing among them, to make worse books out of bad ones, and thrashing chaff to save the dust of it, and a very good trade they drove thereby, especially among children. Then he went by the sea of slops, to the mountain of messes, and the territory of tuck, where the ground was very sticky, for it was all made of bad toffee not Everton toffee, of course, and full of deep cracks and holes choked with wind-fallen fruit, and green gooseberries, and sloes, and crabs, and winberries, and hips and haws, 
and all the nasty things which little children will eat if they can get them. But the fairies hide them out of the way in that country as fast as they can, and very hard work they have, and a very little use it is. For as fast as they hide away the old trash, foolish and wicked people make fresh trash, full of lime and poisonous paints, and actually go and steal recipes out of old Madame Science's big book to invent poisons for little children, and sell them at wakes and fairs and tuck-shops. Very well. Let them go on. Dr. Leithby and Dr. Hassel cannot catch them, though they are setting traps for them all day long. But the fairy with the birch-rod will catch them all in time, and make them begin at one corner of their shops, and eat their way out at the other by which time they will have got such stomach-aches as will cure them of poisoning little children. Next he saw all the little people in the world, writing all the little books in the world, about all the other little people in the world, probably because they had no great people to write about, and if the names of the books were not Squeaky, nor The Pumplighter, nor The Narrow Narrow World, nor The Hills of the Chattermuch, nor The Children's Twaddy Day, why, then, they were something else. And all the rest of the little people in the world read the books, and thought themselves each as good as the President. And perhaps they were right, for every one knows his own business best. But Tom thought he would sooner have a jolly good fairy tale, about Jack the Giant Killer, or Beauty and the Beast, which taught him something that he didn't know already. And next he came to the centre of creation, the hub, they call it there, which lies in latitude 42.21 degrees south, and longitude 108.56 degrees east. And there he found all the wise people instructing mankind in the science of spirit-wrapping, while their house was burning over their heads, and when Tom told them of the fire, they held an indignation meeting forthwith, and unanimously determined to hang Tom's dog for coming into their country with gunpowder in his mouth. Tom couldn't help saying that, though they did fancy they had carried all the wit away with them out of Lincolnshire two hundred years ago, yet if they had had one such Lincolnshire nobleman among them as good old Lord Yarborough, he would have called for the fire-engines before he hanged other people's dogs. But it was of no use, and the dog was hanged, and Tom couldn't even have his carcass, for they had abolished the have-his-carcass act in that country, for fear lest when rogues fell out honest men should come by their own. And so they would have succeeded perfectly, as they always do, only that, as they also always do, they failed in one little particular, that is, that the dog would not die, being a water-dog, but bit their fingers so abominably that they were forced to let him go, and Tom likewise, as British subjects whereon they recommenced rapping for the spirits of their fathers, and very much astonished the poor old spirits were when they came, and saw how, according to the laws of Mrs. B. Dunby-as-you-did, their descendants had weakened their constitution by hard living. Then came Tom to the island of Polypragmosen, which some call Rogue's Harbour, but they are wrong, for that is in the middle of Bramshill bushes, and the county police have cleared it out long ago. There, every one knows his neighbour's business better than his own, and a very noisy place it is, as might be expected, considering that all the inhabitants are, ex officio, on the wrong side of the house, 
in The Parliament of Man and the Federation of the World, and are always making wry mouths and crying that the fairies' grapes were sour. There Tom saw ploughs drawing horses, nails driving hammers, birds' nests taking boys, books making authors, bulls keeping china shops, monkeys shaving cats, dead dogs drilling live lions, blind brigadiers shelved as principals of colleges, play-actors not in the least shelved as popular preachers, and, in short, every one set to do something which he had not learned, because, in what he had learned, or pretended to learn, he had failed. There stands the pantheon of the great unsuccessful, from the builders of the Tower of Babel to those of the Trafalgar Fountains, in which politicians lecture on the constitutions which ought to have marched, conspirators on the revolutions which ought to have succeeded, economists on the schemes which ought to have made everyone's fortune, and projectors on the discoveries which ought to have set the Thames on fire. There, cobblers lecture on orthopedy, whatsoever that may be, because they cannot sell their shoes, and poets on aesthetics, whatsoever that may be, because they cannot sell their poetry. There, philosophers demonstrate that England would be the freest and richest country in the world if she would only turn papist again. Penny-a-liners abuse the times, because they have not wit enough to get on its staff, and young ladies walk about with lockets of Charles I's hair, or of somebody else's when the Jew's genuine stock is used up, inscribed with a neat and appropriate legend, which indeed is popular throughout all that land, and which, I hope, you will learn to translate in due time, and to perpend likewise. Victrix causa dis placuit, said Victor Puellis. When he got into the middle of the town, they all set on him at once, to show him his way, or rather, to show him that he did not know his way, for, as for asking him what way he wanted to go, no one ever thought of that. But one pulled him hither, and another poked him thither, and a third cried, You mustn't go west, I tell you, it's destruction to go west. But I am not going west, as you may see, said Tom. And another, The east lies here, my dear, I assure you that this is the east. But I don't want to go east, said Tom. Well, then, at all events, whichever way you are going, you are going wrong, cried they, all with one voice, which was the only thing which they ever agreed about and all pointed at once to all the thirty-and-two points of the compass, till Tom thought all the signposts in England had got together and fallen fighting. And whether he would have ever escaped out of the town, it is hard to say, if the dog had not taken it into his head that they were going to pull his master in pieces, and tackle them so sharply about gastrocinemius muscle that he gave them some business of their own to think of at last, and while they were rubbing their bitten calves, Tom and the dog got safe away. On the borders of that island he found Gotham, where the wise men live, the same who dragged the pond because the moon had fallen into it, and planted a hedge round the cuckoo to keep spring all the year, and he found them bricking up the town gate because it was so wide the little folks could not get through, and when he asked why they only told him they were expanding their liturgy. So he went on, for it was no business of his, only he could not help saying that, in his country, if the kitten could not get in at the same hole as the cat, she might stay outside and mew.
but he saw the end of such fellows when he came to the island of the golden asses, where nothing but thistles grow. For there they were all turned into mokes, with ears a yard long, for meddling with matters which they do not understand, as Lucius did in the story. And, like him, mokes they must remain, till, by the laws of development, the thistles develop into roses. Till then, they must comfort themselves with the thought that, the longer their ears are, the thicker their hides, and so a good beating don't hurt them. Then came Tom to the great land of Hearsay, in which are no less than thirty and odd kings, besides half a dozen republics, and perhaps more by next mail. And there he fell in with a deep, dark, deadly, and destructive war, waged by the princes and potentates of those parts, both spiritual and temporal, against, what do you think? One thing I am sure of, that unless I told you, you would never know, nor how they waged that war either, for all their strategy and art military consisted in the safe and easy process of stopping their ears and screaming, Oh, don't tell us! and then running away. So when Tom came into that land, he found them all, high and low, man, woman, and child, running for their lives day and night continually, and entreating not to be told they didn't know what, only the land being an island, and they having a dislike to the water, being a musty lot for the most part, they ran round and round the shore for ever, which, as the island was exactly of the same circumference as the planet on which we have the honour of living, was hard work, especially to those who had business to look after. But before them, as bandmaster and fugleman, ran a gentleman shearing a pig, the melodious strains of which animal led them for ever, if not to conquest, still to flight, and kept up their spirits mightily with the thought that they would at least have the pig's wool for their pains. And running after them, day and night, came such a poor, lean, seedy, hard-worked old giant, as ought to have been cockered up, and had a good dinner given to him, and a good wife found him, and been set to play with little children, and then he would have been a very presentable old fellow after all, for he had a heart, though it was considerably overgrown with brains. He was made up principally of fish-bones and parchment, put together with wire and Canada balsam, and smelt strongly of spirits, though he never drank anything but water, but spirits he used somehow there was no denying. He had a great pair of spectacles on his nose, and a butterfly-net in one hand, and a geological hammer in the other, and was hung all over with pockets, full of collecting-boxes, bottles, microscopes, telescopes, barometers, ordnance-maps, scalpels, forceps, photographic apparatus, and all other tackle, for finding out everything about everything, and a little more, too. And most strange of all, he was running, not forwards, but backwards, as fast as he could. Away all the good folks ran from him, except Tom, who stood his ground and dodged between his legs, and the giant, when he had passed him, looked down and cried, as if he was quite pleased and comforted. What? Who are you? and you actually don't run away like all the rest?" But he had to take his spectacles off, Tom remarked, in order to see him plainly. Tom told him who he was, and the giant pulled out a bottle and a cork instantly, to collect him with. But Tom was too sharp for that, 
and dodged between his legs and in front of him, and then the giant could not see him at all. No, 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 said Tom. I've not been around the world and through the world and up to Mother Carey's haven, besides being caught in a net and called a holothurian and a cephalopod, to be bottled up by any old giant like you. And when the giant understood what a great traveller Tom had been, he made a truce with him at once, and would have kept him there to this day to pick his brains, so delighted was he at finding any one to tell him what he did not know before. "'Ah, you lucky little dog!' said he at last, quite simply, for he was the simplest, pleasantest, honestest, kindliest old Dominie Sampson of a giant that ever turned the world upside down without intending it. "'Ah, you lucky little dog! If I had only been where you had been, to see what you had seen!' "'Well,' said Tom, "'if you want to do that, you had best put your head under water for a few hours, as I did, and turn into a water baby, or some other baby, and then you might have a chance.' turn into a baby, eh? If I could do that, and know what was happening to me but for one hour, I should know everything then, and be at rest. But I can't. I can't be a little child again. And I suppose if I could, it would be no use, because then I should know nothing about what was happening to me. Ah, oh, you lucky little dog, said the poor old giant. But why do you run after all these poor people? said Tom who liked the giant very much. "'My dear, it's they that have been running after me, father and son, for hundreds and hundreds of years, throwing stones at me till they have knocked off my spectacles fifty times, and calling me a malignant and turbaned Turk, who beat a Venetian and traduced the state. Goodness only knows what they mean, for I never read poetry, and hunting me round and round, though catch me they can't, for every time I go over the same ground, I go the faster and grow the bigger, while all I want is to be friends with them and to tell them something to their advantage, like Mr. Joseph Adie, only somehow they are so strangely afraid of hearing it, but I suppose I am not a man of the world and have no tact. But why don't you turn round and tell them so? Because I can't. You see, I am one of the sons of Epimetheus, and must go backwards if I am to go at all. But why don't you stop, and let them come up to you? Why, my dear, only think. If I did, all the butterflies and cockioli birds would fly past me, and then I should catch no more new species, and should grow rusty and mouldy and die. And I don't intend to do that, my dear. For I have a destiny before me, they say, though what it is I don't know, and don't care. Don't care, said Tom. No. Do the duty which lies nearest you, and catch the first beetle you come across, is my motto, and I have thriven by it for some hundred years. Now I must go on. Dear me, while I have been talking to you, at least nine new species have escaped me and on went the giant, behind before, like a bull in a china shop, till he ran into the steeple of the great idol temple, for they are all idolatrous in those parts, of course, else they would never be afraid of giants, and knocked the upper half clean off, hurting himself horribly about the small of the back, but little he cared, for as soon as the ruins of the steeple were well between his legs, 
he poked and peered among the falling stones, and shifted his spectacles, and pulled out his pocket magnifier, and cried, An entirely new aniscus, and three obscure podurellae, besides a moth, which Monsieur Le Roy de Papillon, though he, like all Frenchmen, is given to hasty inductions, says is confined to the limits of the glacial drift. This is most important. And down he sat on the nave of the temple, not being a man of the world, to examine his podurellae. Whereon, as was to be expected, the roof caved in bodily, smashing the idols, and sending the priests flying out of doors and windows, like rabbits out of a burrow when a ferret goes in. But he never heeded, for out of the dust flew a bat, and the giant had him in a moment. Dear me, this is even more important. Here is a cognate species to that which McGillywalkie Brown insists is confined to the Buddhist temples of Little Tibet, and now, when I look at it, it may only be a variety produced by difference of climate. And having bagged his bat, up he got, and on he went, while all the people ran, being in none the better humour for having their temple smashed for the sake of three obscure species of podurella and a Buddhist bat. Well, thought Tom, this is a very pretty quarrel, with a good deal to be said on both sides. But it is no business of mine. And no more it was, because he was a water-baby, and had the original sow by the right ear, which you will never have, unless you be a baby, whether of the water, the land, or the air matters not, provided you can only keep on continually being a baby. So the giant ran round after the people, and the people ran round after the giant, and they are running unto this day for aught I know, or do not know, and will run till either he, or they, or both, turn into little children. And then, as Shakespeare says, and therefore it must be true, Jack shall have Jill, Nought shall go ill, the man shall have his mare again, and all go well. Then Tom came to a very famous island, which was called in the days of the great traveller Captain Gulliver, the Isle of Laputa. But Mrs. Be Done By As You Did has named it over again, the Isle of Tom Toddies, all heads and no bodies. And when Tom came near it, he heard such a grumbling and grunting and growling and wailing and weeping and whining, that he thought people must be ringing little pigs, or cropping puppies' ears, or drowning kittens. But when he came nearer still, he began to hear words among the noise, which was the Tom Toddy's song, which they sing morning and evening, and all night too, to their great idol, Examination. I can't learn my lesson, the examiner's coming. And that was the only song which they knew. And when Tom got on shore, the first thing he saw was a great pillar, on one side of which was inscribed, Playthings not allowed here, at which he was so shocked that he would not stay to see what was written on the other side. Then he looked round for the people of the island, but instead of men, women, and children, he found nothing but turnips, and radishes, beet, and mangelwurzel, without a single green leaf among them and half of them burst and decayed, with toadstools growing out of them. Those which were left began crying to Tom, in half a dozen different languages at once, and all of them badly spoken. "'I can't learn my lesson. Do come and help me!' And one cried, "'Can you show me how to extract this square root?' And another, 
Can you tell me the distance between Elyrie and Beta Camelopardis? And another, What is the latitude and longitude of Snooksville in Normans County, Oregon, U.S.? And another, What was the name of Mutius Skyvola's thirteenth cousin's grandmother's maid's cat? And another, How long would it take a school inspector of average activity to tumble head over heels from London to York? And another, can you tell me the name of a place that nobody ever heard of, where nothing ever happened, in a country which has not been discovered yet? And another. Can you show me how to correct this hopelessly corrupt passage of Gradiocolisertis tabiniticus on the cause why crocodiles have no tongues? And so on, and so on, and so on, till one would have thought they were all trying for tide-waiters' places, or cornetsies in the heavy dragoons. "'And what good on earth will it do you if I tell you?' quoth Tom. "'Well, they didn't know that. All they knew was the examiner was coming.' Then Tom stumbled on the hugest and softest nimble-cum-quick turnip you ever saw, filling a hole in a crop of swedes, and it cried to him, "'Can you tell me anything at all about anything you like?' "'About what?' says Tom about anything you like, for as fast as I learn things, I forget them again. So my mamma says that my intellect is not adapted for methodic science, and says that I must go in for general information." Tom told him that he did not know general information, nor any officers in the army. Only he had a friend once that went in for a drummer. But he could tell him a great many strange things which he had seen in his travels. So he told him prettily enough while the poor turnip listened very carefully. And the more he listened, the more he forgot, and the more water ran out of him. Tom thought he was crying, but it was only his poor brains running away from being worked so hard. And as Tom talked, the unhappy turnip streamed down all over with juice, and split and shrank, till nothing was left of him but rind and water. Whereat Tom ran away in a fright, for he thought he might be taken up for killing the turnip. But, on the contrary, the turnip's parents were highly delighted, and considered him a saint and a martyr, and put up a long inscription over his tomb about his wonderful talents, early development, and unparalleled precocity. Were they not a foolish couple? But there was a still more foolish couple next to them, who were beating a wretched little radish no bigger than my thumb, for sullenness and obstinacy and wilful stupidity, and never knew that the reason why it couldn't learn, or hardly even speak was, that there was a great worm inside it eating out all its brains. But even they are no foolisher than some hundred score of papas and mamas who fetch the rod when they ought to fetch a new toy, and send to the dark cupboard instead of to the doctor. End of chapter 8, part 1